Welcome to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. Today, we're going to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, generally known as the IRA, not to be confused with an individual retirement account or various Irish militia groups. The IRA of 2022 is the successor to the House passed Build Back Better Act and is the largest piece of federal legislation ever to address climate change. We're joined today on Zoom by Winston Apple, author and former member of the Democratic National Committee. Hi, Winston. Hi, hello, Bob. Thanks for having me. Howie Hawkins, co-founder of the Green Party of the United States and 2020 presidential nominee. Hi, Howie. Hi, Bob. Tony Cerna, Vice President of Organizational Strategy at the Citizens Climate Lobby. Hi, Tony. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me on the show. Todd Vachon, Director of the Labor Education Action Research Network at Rutgers University. Hi, Todd. Hey, Bob. Great to be here. So the IRA allocates $369 billion for energy and climate change, specifically solutions to drive down consumer energy costs, increase energy security, and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But some climate experts point out that the IRA also extends the fossil fuel era by mandating that vast tracts of public land be offered for gas and oil development, and by including tax credits for new carbon capture techniques that actually extend the life of dirty coal plants, not to mention new tax credits that extend the life of aging nuclear plants. I'd like to start by going around the room and getting everyone's summary opinion of the IRA. You know, it climate salvation? Is it better than nothing? Or is it a fossil fuel lifeline? Howie, let's start with you. Well, we went from Build Back Better, which I thought was inadequate, to what I now call Build Back Badly. I think that's what Manchin's bill is. The amount of investment is token compared to what's needed. It's the greatest climate bill ever, but we had zero before this. Anything above zero would have been the greatest bill. What's missing are mandates and regulations to reduce carbon. It all depends on, you know, you give money to corporations and hope they do the right thing. Um, And there's no planning and coordination through the public sector, uh, which means we're reliant on hundreds of corporations making their own decisions based on their own bottom line and how they're going to come together for this complex transition is just not within the scope of this bill. You know, the numbers we're talking about, it's uh, 20% of the 10 trillion that the mainstream climate movement was asking for when Biden put forward 2 trillion. You know, the climate, the eco-socialist Green New Deal I proposed was 27 and a half trillion. Bernie Sanders was 16.3 trillion. And what we got now is a tiny fraction of what these realistic proposals were talking about. And I think also, you know, You really hit on it when you mentioned that this is a pro-fossil fuels bill. They have to uh, offer uh, land for, uh, well, 2 million acres of public lands and 60 million acres of offshore waters for oil and gas leasing each year. And they have to offer that before that land can be used for uh, utility scale solar and wind projects. So the Center for Biological diversity calls it a climate suicide pact. Um, So I don't want to go on and on. There's plenty to say, but uh, I have a low opinion of it. I think the bottom line is we can't settle for this. We got to keep pushing for, you know, what we need and we don't have it. Winston, what do you think about the IRA? Well, uh, 
I think you said it yourself, Bob, that's uh, better than nothing. But uh, I agree with Howie that it's not significantly better than nothing. Um, I am a climate alarmist, and I make no apologies about that. I believe that by the time we wake up and realize just what we mean by an uninhabitable earth or an existential threat, admittedly terms that are not in a lot of people's vocabulary, uh, it's going to be too late. And I think, uh, you know, there's a, I didn't understand it when I first read it and described as a Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. I, I get it now. And uh, while certainly there have been uh, many other interesting things going on, I think the most interesting thing is with the climate crisis, with global warming, that there will come a point when it's obvious. I don't think we've reached that point yet because most of the damage we've seen so far has been property damage. In terms of human lives lost, it's been relatively minor so far. But when you look at reports going back 20, 30 years now, uh, extinction is a very real possibility and it's much sooner than most people think. Uh, Dr. Stephen Luby gave a talk on February 13th, 2019 with the title, Can Our Collective Action Avert Imminent Human Extinction? And he talked about three possible outcomes for humanity by the end of this century, which isn't that far away. Extinction, collapse of civilization, with limited numbers of humans surviving or a thriving human society. I picked number three, but I'm afraid by the time enough of us pick number three, it may be too late. I can tell this is gonna be a really uplifting show today. Yes. <laughs> Todd, how do you feel about the IRA? Well, I'm probably not gonna be much more uplifting than the previous <laughs> two speakers. <laughs> I agree that it's woefully inadequate and, um, you know, better than nothing, I guess, is is one way to put it. But really, you know, a big part of the problem is that it's just based entirely on market incentives, right? And it's market incentives that have brought us into this crisis in the first place, right? It's just, it's just absurd. It's like treating alcoholism with a bottle of whiskey by including more new fossil fuel projects in into the solution for the climate crisis, which is caused, you know, predominantly by the consumption and burning of fossil fuels. There are some little pieces in there, though, if you want to look for little bright spots, you know, for example, the the direct pay provision that allows, you know, cooperatives and nonprofits like unions and other organizations to get the rebates for putting solar on the roofs that previously only private corporations could do. And that led to a lot of, you know, power purchase agreements and these neoliberal sort of solutions to putting solar panels on the roofs of public buildings, but having them owned by private entities because only a private entity could get the tax incentive. So the direct pay provision, I think, is a good thing that allows, you know, public entities and nonprofit organizations to take advantage of the incentive to solarize. Um, but, you know, that's not going to solve the climate crisis, right? That's very piecemeal. And as Winston and Howie said, we need really a comprehensive, publicly led, publicly funded program um, that's just not relying on market incentives. You know, those are the things that led us to the climate crisis and also led us to the point of high income inequality and the, and the dearth of good jobs that we have in the U.S. at this point today. Sorry, IRA. Yes, my role here is to be the optimist. Um, I actually think the IRA is a big deal. I think it uh, it does a lot of good things. It's going to make um, 
there be a lot of affordable clean energy in this country. I think it's going to lower consumers' prices for that energy. I think it's going to, um, you know, really sets us on a good path towards a, a clean energy future in the electricity sector. I think there's, uh, but I will agree with everyone here, there's a lot more to be done. I mean, when you talk about reaching the kinds of uh, emissions reductions that are needed, that's, you know, what we, what's the international panel on climate change says we need to, to have. Um, this only gets us about halfway to what we need to see by 2030. And it, you know, it doesn't do all the work that we need to do by 2050 to get us to net zero. So there's a lot more work to be done. I think there's a lot of policies that we still need to get in place. I do think the IRA relies primarily on carrots uh, rather than sticks that, you know, some ways people are describing it. I do think we need to see more, um, you know, not just incentives to do the right thing, but some penalties for doing the wrong thing, uh, whether that's a, a regulation or um, um, I'll actually say I'm a fan of market signals. And I think there are places for, uh, you know, carbon pricing and other market signals that can that uh, in the mix to you know drive the the uh, clean energy transformation that we need to see both in uh, you know in buildings and in industry in the electric sector in the transportation sector. So I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. It's uh, you know 100% agree. Not enough. We need to do more. We need to be acting on this fast. You know 100% in agreement that we need to be taking you know significant action on climate change and we don't have time to wait. Um, but I do think that this is a is a good start and headed in the right direction. Well, let's look at some of the big numbers in the IRA. In the energy sector, the IRA allocates $40 billion, billion towards clean energy manufacturing, things like solar panels, windmills, batteries. There's $9 billion in home energy rebates to so focus on energy efficiency and 10 years of consumer tax credits for the use of heat pumps, rooftop solar, um, high efficiency, HVAC, cooling, heating, water heaters, that kind of stuff. Now, the previous U.S. policies were projected to reduce greenhouse gas emissions 24 to 27% by the year 2030. We all agree that's not enough. With the IRA, projections are now up to 32 to 42% reduction by 2030. That's a reduction increase of maybe 10 to 15%. Compare that to Biden's campaign promise of a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Our best case scenario with the IRA is now 42%. I think I know the answer to this question, but you know, wondering, is that good enough? Howie? Well, it's not good enough. I mean, if you look at the fair shares analysis of what the US should do as part of a global system, we not only have to reduce 100%, we have to reduce by 195%. And the way you do that is by putting money into international spending to help particularly countries in the global South leap out of the 19th century fossil fuel age into the 21st century solar age. And there's nothing for that in this Build Back Badly bill, also known as the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and then the models that, that come with 30 to 42%. I've looked at all of them, Rhodium, Princeton's Repeat, Energy Innovation, and Moody's. And they all have very unrealistic assumptions, I think, of what the private sector and what state and local government are going to do in correspondence with this federal bill. And then they assume that a fifth of the carbon reductions that they get in their models will come from carbon capture and sequestration. And when this came out, there were people that, uh, you know, a, a couple of guys that started a company 14 years ago to get in on that business and they've abandoned it. They say that op-ed in the New York Times titled, every dollar spent on this climate technology is a waste. And there was another environmental policy professor at uh, 
American University that's part, they have a research there, group there on carbon removal. And they pointed out that it depends on this high carbon reduction from carbon capture. And then you look at what we got, we got 12 carbon capture facilities, all but one of them pump that carbon dioxide into oil fields to push more oil out. You know, so it's not really reducing carbon in the total picture. And none of them actually net reduction in carbon. That technology has not proven uh, useful. And then in the final analysis, these people said that uh, to get to net zero emissions uh, using some of this carbon capture technology by 2050, we'll have to build 65,000 miles of carbon dioxide pipeline. I mean, so all that's built into these models that say we're going to have these reductions. Frankly, I'm skeptical. Tony, let's jump to you. Energy sector, you seeing any positives there? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot uh, of positive uh, news in the environment in, in, you know, in terms of, um, you know, ushering in the clean energy economy on the electric sector, the incentives, uh, extending the credits for renewables and extending those broadly to any technology that can uh, be zero emissions, I think is a, is a good step forward. A lot of the models are showing that we can get to almost 80% clean energy by 2030. Um, I'd love to see us go faster than that. I think we need to be introducing more legislation at the state and local level and at the federal level. Um, I actually think that the, you know, the carbon capture technology, I think is, is really not a viable technology for the electricity sector for the most part, but I think it's an important technology for the industrial sector. There's there are emissions that can't be abated very easily. Uh, an example being uh, process emissions in the cement industry, where um, it's not from burning fossil fuels; it's from the chemical reaction that's made that's used to make cement. And if we want to avoid emitting that carbon dioxide, we have to capture it. There's not a, or we have to find a, you know, a radical alternative to to, to concrete, and that's not in the near future. So I think it's an important technology to explore. I think uh, it hasn't panned out so far in the electricity sector, but it is something we need to be open to. And uh, I think it's good that they're funding research into it. Bob, you, uh, you used a three word phrase that I think is the key to the whole thing here. Is it enough? And I, I think for me, if it's enough, we will not have a serious climate catastrophe. I mean, if the goal here is to avoid extinction or even the collapse of civilization, um, Mother Nature is not negotiating with us on this. If we don't do the right things, it won't matter what we've said, it won't matter what deals we cut with Joe Manchin to get this or that done and what we had to give up to get it. Uh, frankly, I'm in this fight for one reason and it's my children and my grandchildren and everybody else's children and grandchildren. I don't want them, uh, in the words of a report that was done for the Department of Defense in 2003, that there could be abrupt changes at any point as we pass certain thresholds that would put serious and irreversible on a human timescale changes into effect that would lead, and this is the words from the analyst that did this report for the Department of Defense, that humankind would once again be in a state of war of all against all. I don't want my children and grandchildren caught in a war of all against all for mere survival. 
And this is not near enough to avoid that, in my opinion. And what we need to be talking about is what do we need to do and can we find a way to do it yesterday to avoid the worst effects of global warming? A little more sunshine for everybody. Yeah. Well, <laughs> add a little more rain to the mix. I have to agree with you, Winston. And it's the same thing for me being a father of three children, just the injustice of it. And also just the terrifying potential future of chaos and civilization collapse if we don't uh, properly address this now. Is it enough? Well, I mean, put the numbers in perspective. The first thing I think is if you want to know the values of a society, look how they use their resources, right? Well, we do $60 billion a year in, uh, we forego $60 billion a year in tax revenue for home mortgage deductions. That's more than this we're spending on climate change. We spend $800 billion a year on US military, $800 billion, right? That's a lot. You want to talk about a lot of money. And that's not a one-time bill. That's every year, $800 billion. Um, if we were to treat the climate crisis as the real threat that it is and spend $800 billion a year on this, we could have this whipped into shape in no time. Uh, it requires the political will and the education to get there. Um, but it really, it just shows how minimal this bill really is. If you put it in perspective on other things that we're spending our public revenue on, that our government is spending our public tax dollars on. Let's jump over to the food sector, another big allocation. The IRA is allocating $20 billion to invest in climate smart agriculture, $5 billion in forest conservation and urban tree planting, and $2.6 billion to protect and restore coastal habitats. Now, the EPA reports that the energy sector is responsible for 25% of greenhouse gas emissions, and the agricultural sector is responsible for 24%. You know, that's almost identical emissions between energy and agriculture. Yet the food sector is only getting half of the money that's allocated to the energy sector. Uh, Winston, you keep talking about, you know, extinction, and obviously food is a big player there. Do you think we've allocated enough money to address our food issues? No. I, and, you know, food is the issue, food and water and other resources. But food and water were mentioned in that 2003 report. They're mentioned in all the scenario type reports that have been done since 2003. Uh, I mean, the scenario is most people, I don't think most people can even really conceptualize what extinction looks like. Um, I first came across the phrase in March of 2014 in the Kansas City Star, there was a review of Elizabeth Colbert's book, The Sixth Extinction. That was the first time I heard that humans might be among the species to go extinct. And the reviewer with a little bit of dark humor, which I appreciated then and still do, pointed out that if the human race goes extinct as a result of our failure to respond appropriately to the climate crisis, it will be the first known example of mass suicide by an allegedly intelligent species. And I'd like to think we're smart enough to figure out, should have figured out by now, um, but, but food is the key. It's people, uh, John Maynard Keynes in 1930 something, pointed out that uh, a lot of people when faced with starvation die quietly, but not so much men with guns. There's no shortage of men with guns in the world today or nuclear armed nations with rivers running between them. 
And what we're really talking about is at some point between now and some point in the future, World War III breaking out, and it's going to be people against people and nations against nation fighting over food and water more than anything else. But also as wet bulb temperatures get high enough to kill people who don't have access to air conditioning, uh, having the juice to run air conditioners uh, is going to be necessary to preserve human life as well. Uh, it's a really grim scenario that we're trying to avoid. And I don't get the impression that any of our leaders, any of them, really are responding appropriately, I, I except Howie Hawkins. <laughs> I, th I think food is certainly uh, undervalued or, or underplayed in, in the climate scenario. If we look at the um, international security in terms of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Chinese um, expansion throughout the Pacific, I think a lot of that is food driven. So I do think that the food sector needs more focus. Tony, some positive thoughts? I'm going to keep coming back to you to kind of raise this doom and gloom feeling we have. Save us, Tony. You're our only hope. Uh, I mean, I, I really envision a, a vibrant and thriving future for, uh, for humanity and for our country. Um, and it's obviously going to take a lot of work to get there because I, I don't disagree that there's a, a pretty negative path we could take, but um, I'm optimistic that, that, we can, that we can get there to that better future. And in terms of agriculture, I think that our, uh, you know, farmers and ranchers in this country have a big role to play in, in that, you know, thriving future. And I think there's a lot that can be done to, um, you know, reduce the, the impacts of, of our agricultural systems, to expand our forests, to integrate the two together. Uh, so there's silvopasture. Um, I think that we can integrate clean energy into our agricultural systems. We you know with you know wind wind farms and agrivoltaics. Um, the money in the IRA is great. I think it it basically goes to expand and and fully fund some of the programs that that our farmers and ranchers are already familiar with, like the Equip program and some of the other conservation programs. Uh, what I do think we need to do is in the upcoming farm bill, we need to make sure that 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 money is allocated towards climate smart agriculture. If we just extend the existing programs, that's great. It's going to help conservation. It's going to help water quality, ha habitat loss. Uh, but we also need to make sure that it's looking at how do we reduce the carbon that's em emitted through our agricultural systems? How do we draw down carbon through natural processes with forests and soil? And so we need to make sure that that's a priority listed for the USDA. The USDA is not currently tasked with reducing carbon. The USDA is you know, tasked with a whole bunch of different things, but not that. And so we need to have the farm bill reflect that priority. And when it does, we can turn all of our farmers, give them the incentives to you know, be good steward. I mean, to continue the good stewardship they are doing, but to add steward stewardship of the climate as well as, as the land. Jump over the transportation sector just briefly. And it looks to me like transportation's a mixed bag. Um, the IRA extends the current $7,500 tax credit for the purchase of new electric vehicles. And they've added a $4,000 tax credit for the purchase of used EVs. But it also extends excise tax credits for less desirable solutions like biodiesel and the alternative fuel vehicle repealing property credit, which includes compressed and liquid natural gas, that's CNG and LNG. And there's $0 allocated for mass transit. You know, so instead of getting cars off the road, the IRA is just swapping gas engines for electric ones, which is going to increase pressure on our electric grid. Now, don't get me wrong, an electric vehicle beats a gas vehicle in every possible way, cost, health, efficiency, 
but a modern mass transit system is really the only sustainable transportation solution. And the $20 billion that was allocated for mass transit in the Build Back Better Act didn't make it into the IRA. Wonder if we missed the mark on transportation. And let's jump back to you, Tony. You know, what are the positives here? Well, I would love to see more money invested into, you know, walking, biking, transit, all that. And a lot of that did go into the uh, funding in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act last year. So there is money available to cities um, and municipalities to expand their public transit, to create uh, complete streets that are healthy, uh, that, you know, promote healthy forms of transportation. So, um, you know, the fact that the uh, in, in, Inflation Reduction Act mostly expands the, you know, and extends the EV tax credits. I think that um, we need to see both of those. You know, with transportation, there's not there's not one thing we need to do. We need to do all of those different things. We need to reduce vehicles miles traveled. We need to transition to electric. Uh, we need to get people out of out of vehicles and onto their feet and onto their bicycles and electric bikes. The IRA does not do all of that. It uh, it does a piece of that. There's a lot more that can be done. And um, you know, hopefully, our cities and states and our federal government can can line up behind those priorities and, and get us to. Um, you know, a more efficient and equitable and uh, environmentally friendly transportation system in this country. You're listening to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. We're speaking with Todd Vachon, Tony Cerna, Howie Hawkins, and Winston Apple about the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. So let's look at some of the specific sections of the IRA. Section 134 of the IRA establishes a greenhouse gas reduction fund of around $27 billion dollars. $7 $7 billion of this is dedicated to clean energy deployment in low-income communities, and the rest will be used to create America's first national green bank. That's kind of like a clean energy accelerator. You know, Senator Ed Markey says, the climate test is simple, jobs, justice, and climate. The National Climate Bank does all of that. What are your thoughts? Winston? I, uh, I was impressed looking through the Act that it does incorporate in a small way lots of different sections of the Green New Deal resolution. Uh, it does address uh, indigenous peoples and uh, rural areas and whatever. It's very inclusive. Again, there's not near enough of, of anything in it. Um, I want to, I know I've been relentlessly uh, grim so far and, and something that Tony said a moment ago, thriving human society is my choice too. I think it's way better than extinction or collapse of civilization. Uh, and I actually believe that a thriving human society and uh, you mentioned jobs and justice, uh, we have just missed such a bet on all of this. If politicians, when they run for office, consistently talk about listening to the voters. I've been listening to voters for decades now, and the two things at the top all the time are jobs and the economy, and public option for healthcare not far behind some of the time. Um, John Maynard Keynes, in 1936, in his general theory of employment, interest, and money, advocated for true full employment through a federal job guarantee, which is now much easier to accomplish now that we have a fiat money system. 
we've talked, Howie and I have talked on some of your programs before, Bob, about the Jobs for All Act. And there's a tiny little thing in the last version of that that was introduced back in 2019 that says the federal government could give grants to reverse global warming and to address climate issues. And that, you know, a thriving human society, ASAP, is the best case scenario. And you get there by making America more truly democratic. 72% of the people want a federal job guarantee. There's, if you look at everything that needs to be done to really address the climate crisis, it's very labor intensive. So let's put a job guarantee in place. Let's do what the Jobs for All Act proposed and give an unlimited amount of grants until we have true full employment to state and local governments and nonprofits to put people to work on this and get us there tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon by three o'clock. So this new National Climate Bank, I mean, it basically isn't that what it does. It creates grants for the climate, Howie. Right. Well, the uh, environmental justice, particularly the people of color environmental justice groups, very angry about this bill because the way it's set up is to get those grants or to get those loans from the, the bank. Uh, it's, you got to have a staff. You got to be organized. So the big NGOs and corporations are going to be first in line, kind of like the PPP program after the, uh, you know, during the COVID crisis where the big corporations had the staff, the lawyers, they all got their grants in by the time the little guy figured out what was going on, it was too late. Um, and so they feel they're not going to get this money. In their communities, people are going to get paid to serve their communities, but they're not going to be from the communities. They're not going to really understand what the priorities are. So they're very critical of that. And they're also critical that included in what is called clean energy in these grants and loans is carbon capture and sequestration, nuclear power, biofuels, which release carbon, fossil hydrogen, and carbon markets for carbon offsets, which have not worked at all. So, you know, I don't think that money's there. And then we're talking about such token amounts. I mean, before we're talking about agriculture and transportation, you know, the 36 or the 369 uh, billion over 10 years is about $37 billion a year. And was pointed out that compares to a military budget over 800 billion every year. So it's, it's very small amounts. Take the 20 billion for you know, agriculture, that's 2 billion a year. Um, when we priced it out in, in the Eco-Socialist Green New Deal, we came to uh, 2 trillion, no, through 1 trillion or basically 100 billion a year for agriculture to make the transition, which involved not just machinery, so you're using carbon-free, you know, electric-powered tractors and harvesters and so forth, but also you're paying for more labor because if you're going to do regenerative agriculture, it's going to be more labor-intensive. You need, I think the figure was a million more people working. So the federal government would subsidize uh, the payment for some of those workers as the farmers made the transition. None of that is in this bill. Um, and then the, you know, Civilian Conservation Corps or Civilian Climate Corps, uh, I can't, I didn't look at the details in this, but what they were proposing before when that was part of the Build Back Better was not like the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 30s, in the New Deal, when it was a federal agency 
that set up the projects and then hired people as public employees. This is going to be grants to private organizations, which creates a whole nother layer of bureaucracy. It's privatizing a good idea. And that's, you know, the overall picture of this bill is that's what it does with amounts of money that are not, not don't even begin to address the problem. You really want to transform agriculture. It's going to take on an order of uh, $3 trillion over the next 10 years. That's at least the, what we priced out when we did our budget. And, you know, people can quibble with the budget, but it's, you know, I look at this bill and it's, it's like, you know, maybe some pilot projects will get done. That's about it. Tony, National Green Bank. I mean, I think one of the best things about the, the Green Bank is that it's not just the money that the federal government's putting in there, but that money goes to green banks throughout the country, and then they are able to leverage private capital to do these projects, um, you know, that are going to benefit, uh, you know, cities, you know, towns, um, you know, various programs. And so, you know, we need to be, you know, in the same way that I think our, our farmers and ranchers have a role to play in the thriving, you know, uh, future that we want. I think our bankers and our financiers have a, play, a role to play in that too. And we need to make sure that they have uh, the leverage that they can, you know, that they're applying their power and their leverage to, uh, to green solutions and to, you know, climate friendly solutions. So I'm excited about the Green Bank. I, you know, agree again, it's just a token, it's just a start, but I think it's gonna establish a network of these green banks around the country uh, that can then leverage increasing amounts of capital, both from state governments as well as from uh, you know private sources, and I think we'll be able to grow this in the future and you know establish more and more funding for projects, get them over the the, the hump so that they are viable in the marketplace and can sustain themselves on their own. And I think that uh, we'll see you know a lot of good things come come from the screen bank process. Uh, Winston and Howie, you both kind of mentioned the American jobs, and I think um, the IRA is focused on creating jobs. There's uh, clean energy tax credits to refurbish old U.S. factories and build new ones. And, you know, these would be factories for things like batteries, solar panels, wind turbines and such. This domestic manufacturing is intended to increase our energy security by reducing our dependence on foreign oil and renewables. But these tax credits also mandate livable wages and apprenticeship training programs, which should make it easy for workers in the fossil fuel and other industries to transition to clean energy jobs. Todd, do you want to talk about that? American jobs. Sure. Well, so there's some things that the bill does do, and then there's some things that it doesn't. As you mentioned, it, it does provide incentives, really three three big areas that there are incentives around jobs. One is uh, for prevailing wages, offering a prevailing wages on construction projects. The other is for um, uh, use of apprenticeships, certified apprenticeship programs, again, in the construction sector. And the third piece has to do with uh, a use of a certain percentage of domestic content, so domestically manufactured goods going into the construction process. So the first thing I want to point out here is that almost all of it is related to the construction sector. So my sisters and brothers in the building trades unions are very happy with these incentives. Um, but it says very little about the rest of the economy and the other occupations that have a lot to offer in terms of addressing the climate crisis, including the agricultural workers, the service sector workers, the food and retail workers, the transportation workers. Uh, there's, there's very little by way of incentives for um, you know, making improvements in those areas. Uh, second point is these are merely incentives, right? There is no, as Winston said, no actual job, direct job creation. There's no jobs guarantee associated with this. These are incentives for contractors that put in bids to get federal money to construct something. And if they meet certain conditions, they'll get 
a greater incentive in their pocket, right? So the way prevailing wages work, I don't know if listeners are familiar with prevailing wages, but essentially you, you pay what the prevailing wage is in your local area. And the way that that's beneficial to workers and to unions is it takes the labor costs out of the competition and the bidding process. So, uh, you know, contractors that are unionized and pay a living wage and have good health and safety records can compete fairly with other contractors who might otherwise come in with a really low bid because they're exploiting their workers, right? So those are good things. Those are good protections to have. Um, But what the bill is not doing is it's not increasing or expanding the right of workers to organize unions. Currently, it's only 6% of private private sector workers that have a union in the United States today, 10% if you include the public sector workers as well. So without any kind of expansion like the PRO Act or other measures that will help uh, workers that would like to have a union in their workplace, for example, the thousands and thousands of new renewable jobs that may come out of this, the odds of them becoming union are quite slim because labor law is stacked in the favor of anti-union employers like Elon Musk and others who are going to go out of their way to oppose and prevent the workers from organizing a union. And they have all of the legal rights at their disposal to do so, as we've seen with Amazon in the past couple of years. So it doesn't do anything to ensure that the new renewable jobs will be unionized, which is a problem. Um, and it also it doesn't provide for a just transition. There's no layout for what are we going to do if we're going to end fossil fuel use, we're going to end fossil fuel jobs. And that's, that's a piece of it that the bill does not want to touch, which is a very real question that we need to confront. We need to actually phase out fossil fuel use. And we have a lot of workers who need to have a real solid plan that is funded with permanent funding to ensure that either there's a transition to another job, an early transition to retirement, free education, or whatever it may be. Well, the mandate for apprenticeship programs, does that kind of address the um, this transition, say, from fossil fuels, or is there something else needed? Well, it works similar to the prevailing wage um, incentive, Bob. So in the bidding process, the contractors that have apprenticeship programs are going to get a greater incentive. And that predominantly is the unionized um, contractors, right? Because it's the building trades unions and the man- and the construction um, contractors association who together fund apprenticeship programs that are of the sort that this bill speaks to. So that's not necessarily creating a just transition. It's just giving unions a leg up in the bidding process, which again, the unions are very happy about in the construction sector. Tony? You know, my understanding is that the IRA does a lot to onshore manufacturing of both renewable technology, as well as uh, electric vehicles and battery technology, and that there are some real positives to that, both, you know, it creates jobs in, in this country, and it also, you know, brings some of those industries home, which is, uh, you know, strategically beneficial, as well as, um, I think it's uh, climate beneficial, considering, you know, we can bring the manufacturing into a place where we have stricter environmental uh, regulations than, than in some of the other places around the world. Uh, but obviously, there's a lot more that needs to be done there in terms of, uh, you know, finding ways to to improve the you know our industrial emissions portfolio while also providing jobs in those transitions. Um, I do know, and I don't know if Todd can speak to this, but the question of you know there's there's funding to to onshore some of these things and to to incentivize um, you know jobs in energy communities where you know coal plants have closed, et cetera. And I don't know if that you know will if you think that will bring any benefits to those communities where uh, there may be a phase out of uh, you know, jobs from the fossil fuel industry. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's an open question. It remains to be seen how powerful the incentives are as a vehicle for corporations to go pursue those investments, right? Because there's many, many pieces of the calculus when a company is deciding what it's going to build and where it's going to build it and where it's going to open its facilities. Uh, Government tax incentives are just one of the many, many, many factors that they're considering. Um, So I think it's kind of remains to be seen. I'm, I'm hoping that we can get the maximum return of manufacturing to the U.S. from the incentives, but um, I can't say for sure. We'll have to see how it plays out. Another important area the IRA tries to address is climate equity. You know, we all know that the poor communities are, are at least responsible for environmental waste, yet they're often the highest areas that are exposed to industrial to- toxins and pollutions. The IRA allocates $60 billion to address environmental justice problems. For instance, communities with longstanding environmental and health hazards will have access to $2.8 billion in block grants for cleanup and prevention. So that's $60 billion earmarked for environmental justice out of this total of $369 billion. Is that a fair split, Howie? Well, I already talked about the environmental justice groups and these people of color communities are very unhappy with this bill. You know, the people in Cancer Alley in Louisiana are saying, you're, you know, uh, just, you know, making us suffer for another 10 years as a sacrifice zone because this bill also keeps oil and gas production at current levels. And that's where it's, the oil and gas is going to be refined. And so they're very unhappy. And I mentioned, you know, how difficult it would be for these groups to get access to this money. That was Indigenous Environmental Network, you know, wrote a whole thing up about that. So that's one problem. I mentioned the international dimension of this. There's no money in this for, uh, you know, climate reparations or climate debt payments, which is really an investment in the future for all of us. And, you know, we're acting like we can just do this in our country without addressing uh, the problems which are happening around the world, often by our U.S.-based corporations setting up manufacturing that's carbon intensive in cheap labor regions in the global south. Um, And we just talked about the just transition that's not there. And I'm, you know, a teamster. I used to be a construction worker. And I know these guys. They... uh, and they're particularly their uh, staff and, and leaders are not ready to go for renewables unless they got a rock solid guarantee that they're going to have comparable uh, wages and benefits in the new industry. And they look at the solar and wind industry, non-unionized, the retrofitting, uh, you know, to make buildings more efficient and install renewable energy applications, mostly small contractors, non-union. So, you know, the things just mentioned about the PRO Act to make it easier to organize and a just transition. If we don't make that part of the climate policy, uh, the labor movement is split. The service unions are all for climate action, like most of us are, but the people that work in it, they're not even opposed to it. They just want economic security. And then I will have to say the incentives to consumers also have a class bias. You know, electric vehicles instead of mass transit. The average electric vehicle new is $65,000 a year, uh, $65,000. A used vehicle, electric vehicles average $35,000. Now, these are refundable credits, but, you know, the bottom half of the income spectrum aren't even thinking in those numbers. And then when you go to the incentives for home improvements, putting in a heat pump or better insulation or rooftop solar, 
those are not refundable credits. So that means you have to have enough income to be able to, you know, itemize and deduct. So again, the bottom half at least, it doesn't even apply to them. It's just the upscale people who can take advantage of these incentives. So there's a basic design problem that perpetuates inequities. So we need to do a lot of work on our climate policy. Uh, Tony, I wanted to just touch briefly on environmental enforcement. You know, the Supreme Court recently ruled in favor of the state in West Virginia versus EPA, limiting the EPA's authority to enforce the Clean Air Act regulations on existing power plants. I understand the IRA uh, specifically addresses this by granting the EPA more authority. Do you know anything about that? Uh, yeah, I can speak a little bit to that. Uh, what the, the IRA does is it makes it very clear that Congress is treating carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases as a pollutant. And so that was a decision uh, of the Supreme Court in 2009 upheld that notion. And the EPA has been trying to regulate, uh, is required to regulate you know, greenhouse gas pollution uh, since then. Now they haven't had a, as much success as we'd like them to have in doing that. Um, and so this really cements that in. It'd be very hard to overturn that uh, 2009 decision. Now, the de recent decision with West Virginia versus the EPA, um, the IRA doesn't really address that because that was really more of a question of can the EPA regulate not just individual power plants, but the entire electricity sector? And that really was not addressed um, and it couldn't be addressed because uh, the bill went through reconciliation process. But I'd also love to, to talk a little bit about the environmental justice aspects of of the bill, I do think that they're inadequate as the whole bill is inadequate to address the, the scope of the problem, but there's a lot of really good stuff in there. And, and you know, I live in uh, the East Bay in, in you know, San Francisco Bay area. We have a, a dirty port that's here. There's a lot of pollution from that port and there's money in the Inflation Reduction Act to clean up our ports, to clean up airports, to clean up pollution. Uh, you know, uh, respected researchers are estimating that this could save 180,000 lives over the next 10 years uh, due to the lowered pollution levels. And so, um, it's not going to be even across the country. There are definitely areas that did not end up, um, you know, they got, they got neglected in this process, you know, as you know, how I mentioned in, you know, Louisiana and Alaska, you know, there's other issues, but overall we're going to be reducing pollution in this country and that's going to save lives in every single area of this country. And it's going to improve the quality of life of millions of people. Is it transformative? Does it change our entire economy? Does it change all the, the issues? No, it does not, but it's going to be, uh, a real improvement for a lot of people. Thanks, Tony. We've got about three minutes left, so I'd like to give everybody a chance to um, just kind of summarize your thoughts, maybe 30 seconds. And while you're doing that, um, please share a website or something where people could contact you, learn more about your work. Um, Howie, do you want to start? Sure. The, the website is howiehawkins.us. And, um, you know, I, I think the bill's totally inadequate, but let me close on a positive note. There are three important things in this that we need to build upon. One is we just talked about uh, EPA can regulate uh, greenhouse gas reductions in this legislation. That's really important. Now we got to make sure EPA follows through. Um, the direct payment for renewables we talked about that can go to public entities, particularly public power utilities. Again, you know, there are two, over 2,000 public power utilities if we live in one of those, we should push for that to be taken advantage. And then I think the incentives for green hydrogen are important. They're not enough, but that is how we're going to reduce carbon in the industrial sector, where you need high heat for things like steel, chemicals, cement. There, there are other processes than carbon, calcium carbonate for cement that, that we need to substitute. And there's uh, 
products out there that maybe are, can do the job. But in any case, those three things in that bill are good. And I don't want to be, you know, totally negative. So I'll say let's uh, take advantage of those and then push for a much more comprehensive bill going forward. Thanks, Jaime. Winston, where can people reach you? And what are the positives of, of the IRA? Well, I think the, uh, the most positive thing is it does at least move us a little bit in the direction of a thriving human society. And so I have a website, governmentbythepeople.org, that talks about the reforms we need to enact to change the system so that we have a genuine democracy. I'll just close with uh, paraphrasing Princess Leia, uh, save us true democracy, you're our only hope. Thanks, Winston. Tony, where can people go to learn about your work? Final thoughts on the IRA? Yeah, I mean, uh, my position on the IRA is that it is a big deal. I think it's good for people. It's good for the economy. I think it's good for our country. I think it's good for the planet. Uh, it's not enough. We're working to make it uh, make more of this kind of stuff happen. And so uh, at Citizens Climate Lobby, um, you know, people can volunteer to, to influence their legislators, uh, build support for uh, climate solutions. If you want to learn more about the IRA and about our organization, you can go to cclusa.org IRA and you'll get our take on the bill, and there's a chance to, to join our organization there. Thanks, Tony. And Todd? Well, folks can look up Rutgers Learn on whichever your favorite social media uh, source is or find us on the web. The website is kind of long, so I won't list out a website, but Rutgers Learn, uh, the acronym, is uh, Labor Education Action Research Network. And uh, just echoing what my uh, fellow panelists have said today, I do think it's, you know, it's moved the ball forward a little bit, and I think maybe an extra positive that we didn't hit on is it's a great opportunity for education because now we have people looking at and reading terms like prevailing wage and direct pay. And it's a great chance for you know the general voter to really get a look at and read and think about what some of these measures are for addressing the climate crisis. And for those of us that are really committed to addressing it in a more meaningful way, to then turn that education into organizing and advocacy to, to win the truly sustainable you know, democratic future that we all deserve and need. Thank you, Todd. And thank you to our listeners. We welcome your questions and feedback. You can learn more about the Climate Hour at climatehour.net. That's climatehour.net. This is the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove.